My nephew Tanner in Florida works with a pool repair company, and it's called Red Rhino. He loves his job. The company is constantly helping the employees to grow and to develop and to succeed. And after they've helped them, then they invest back in them through bonuses and incentives and paid time off and vacations and salary increases. They have this built-in mentor system where Tanner and others like him train other employees and then they kind of evaluate how they're doing, but not just in their performance. They evaluate how they're doing in adopting the values of the company. And if his trainees succeed, then Tanner is rewarded. And if they don't, they're soon to move on. The more I talked with Tanner, the more I was impressed. I'm always intrigued with this kind of thing where these companies succeed at attracting and retaining high-quality employees, or they take mediocre employees and they nurture them to excellence. And that really impresses me, especially now given our culture when you can barely get people to work. What is it about companies that can do this in this environment. Many companies seem to have a negative attitude to the, through, about their employees and then through gritted teeth will also tell them how privileged they are to have a job. This company, Red Rhino, doesn't seem to do that. They don't, they don't seem to have to remind their employees how privileged they are to work there. Most of them know it. And if they don't, if they don't know it, they're not a fit. Red Rhino has succeeded at creating this environment where employees are striving to go above and beyond, and then they're rewarded for it. And so you could say that Red Rhino is a company that is encouraging their employees to go further up and further in. In C.S. Lewis's final book of his Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle, the second to the last chapter is titled that, Further Up and Further In. And so in the closing chapters, the character arrive, the characters arrive into what we would call heaven, and they're finding everything is not as it appears. No matter where they look or what they explore, the depths and the beauty of the great lion's kingdom grows beyond their comprehension, and it's without end. They cannot explore the end of it. There is an eternity of places to see and things to experience, and C.S. Lewis uses this to try to capture and illustrate what, it's, what it looks like to follow Jesus and to join him in building his kingdom. The kingdom of God as we know it will be glorious in its full completion in ways that we don't know it. And we should absolutely look forward to that day with delight and anticipation. 
But church, in the meantime, we also can't neglect the words of Jesus when he says in John 10, I have come that they might have life. He came to earth that we might have life here and have it in abundance. And so while we wait for this kingdom, there's also life to be had here. And then also we can't ignore that Jesus says to pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth, just as your will is done in heaven. So for those of us who follow Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, from the time he calls our name and we respond to him in faith, we are forever, forever, not just here, but there. We are forever moving further up and further in. This phrase, further up and further in, is also repeated in the last battle many times by various characters throughout the book. Once the great Aslan, the, the lion figure, the Christ figure in the book, once he utters this phrase, his followers pick up on the phrase and they speak it to one another. And so the character Emeth says it this way, Then Aslan breathed upon me and took away the trembling from my limbs and caused me to stand upon my feet. And after that he said not much, but that we should see each other again, and that I must go further up and further in. And then they all went forward together, always westward, westward, for that seemed to be the direction that Aslan had meant when he cried out, further up and further in. A character who is a great eagle, his name is Farsight, he says, don't stop, further up and further in. And then he tilted his flight a little bit upwards. Further up and further in, roared the unicorn, and no one held back. The mouse warrior, Reepicheep, says, Welcome in the lion's name. Come further up and further in. And old Mr. Tumnus says, The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Isn't that great? And as I read these quotes this week, with each instance, I couldn't help but thinking of Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And so in many ways, you could summarize the entire sermon with these same words, further up and further in. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you what I mean. So last week we looked at Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah, King to come. And we saw in some ways this brief overview that there's this entire Old Testament narrative that's revolving about around God setting men and women to be his representatives to the world. And that through these representatives in the world, his blessings would come. From Adam and Eve to King David... Person after person, couple after couple, family after family, judge after judge, king after king, each one falls short of being God's kind of person or God's kind of leader or God's kind of representative. 
who will do his will on earth as it is done in heaven. Nobody, nobody is able to pull it off. Nobody will joyfully and diligently and sacrificially carry out the will of God on earth as it is done in heaven. Everyone fails. And then as we mentioned last week, after years and years of failure, 400 years of silence, and then God breaks the silence with His words with skin on. Matthew announces the king has arrived. And this king, King Jesus, came willingly. He came joyfully. He came at his expense to do the will of the Father just as the will of the Father is done in heaven. And so the author of Hebrews says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The Apostle John says it this way in John 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And later in chapter 6, John says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. Or John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. We're kind of flashing through this first part of Matthew's Gospel as we look at the life of Christ celebrating His birth. And one of the things we see right in chapter 4, right in the beginning, is this theme of the, of the temptation that Jesus faces. We're, we're given three snapshots into the temptation. We know that He was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm sure, I believe, there was actually more than three, but not less. And he faced them regularly. But each one of these temptations, although different, were the same in this way. That they were all in effort to get Christ to live out His will and to exert His will instead of His Father's to trust in His way rather than His Father's way. But again, He came to willingly, joyfully, and delightfully, perfectly carry out God's will on earth the same way it is done in heaven. And so Matthew rejoices, the King has arrived. And as we continue in his gospel, where we're going to be today, Matthew then speaks, as we get into Matthew chapter 5, of Jesus, the king, now speaking. The king speaks, and from the very beginning of his speaking ministry, he, he begins by speaking 
about the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus has been in the wilderness. He resists the evil one for 40 days and 40 nights. He carries out perfectly the will of his Father in the face of the evil one himself. He, he triumphantly comes out of the wilderness. He goes to the seashore. He picks young men to follow him. And then he starts to teach. Chapter 4, verse 17. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in this very first section, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to chunk it off into some check sections, and we're going to camp in verses 17 through 20. But I encourage you to spend some time in this whole, whole chapter, but the, you really want to read 5, 6, and 7 uh, together. But in this very first section, Jesus opens his sermon by pronouncing nine blessings, verses 1 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. There's nine of them. We read them while we opened together today. And these nine pronouncements are blessings upon who? They're blessings upon people who are seeking to live out God's kingdom principles on earth as they are done in heaven. This kind of blessing that Jesus is speaking about is part of the life of people who are seeking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the second section of his sermon, verses 13 through 16, King Jesus says that if his hearers will hear his words and obey them in faith, and live out God's truth, His words, on earth as they are done in heaven, then they will be salt. They will be a preservative in their community. They will be light. They will dispel darkness. And as they apply the truth to their lives together, they will be as a city on a hill that people will look to to see the image, the glory of the Lord. In the third section, verses 17 through 20, we get this understanding that Jesus realizes that the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven has been very dis disrupted. It has been distorted and misrepresented. If you're following what's happening here, Jesus is saying... Blessed are you when you live out the principles of the kingdom of heaven. You will be like this, salt, light, a city. But he also is in tune with his audience and he knows when I mention the kingdom of heaven and you being salt, light in a city, you're thinking differently than I think. You with me? He knows their perspective on kingdom living has been warped by the way, the words, and the manner in which their present-day teachers have been teaching them. And so they're confused. 
And so he finds it necessary to clarify for them his intentions, his purpose, and then what their job is as kingdom dwellers. Because again, they've been disoriented by their short-sighted teachers. The religious leaders of that time had gotten it very wrong. They were leading poorly and had utterly misrepresented what it means to live as members of God's kingdom on earth. And so the king speaks. Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. What Jesus was getting ready to teach and how he was getting ready to live was going to be so countercultural to them that they would not have understood it to be the kingdom of God unless he clarifies for them what he is doing. You following me? Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to, others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the Sadducees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven three times in three verses. And there's three crucial things that he says about his kingdom in these important verses. And the first one that he tells his listeners, us, is this. I am here to fulfill God's laws, not to change them. But the way the people would have interpreted what Jesus was doing was this, and and people are still doing it today, by the way. You get into the study of this passage, and, and people still believe that he was actually completely undoing the Old Testament law, even though he clearly says he wasn't. What he, how he lived was so different than their understanding about what God's law looked like on earth and the spirit behind it. How he lived was so different, they needed to have their mind transformed. And so the first crucial thing that Jesus says about his kingdom is, I'm bringing the kingdom and I am here to fulfill God's laws, not to change them. And as he begins to teach them and reteach them about the kingdom of heaven, he begins to help his listeners realize that the kingdom is a door we enter but then it is much larger on the inside than it is on the outside. It's bigger than they can possibly understand. And so he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in verse 18 he says, All of God's words will be fulfilled. I'm not skipping over them. All of them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot 
will pass from the law until it is accomplished. In other words, you will see the kingdom lived out in me. You will see the kingdom lived out through my love and my delighting in the Father's will. But I'm going to go way past your understanding. We're going way past the scribe's expectations of what it means to obey the law. So this first thing he says that's really important before we get to the rest is, I've come to fulfill God's laws, not to change them. The second important thing that he says is this, it's not about lowering the bar so that everybody can get in. Realize this, I'm not lowering the standard. Matter of fact, he's upping it. I'm not lowering the standard so that everybody can get in. And church, this is a great anchor for us in a culture that is continually lowering God's truths in order to be more inclusive and accommodating. Okay, but let me tell you this. True humility is not lowering God's standards. You know why? Because we're not enough to change God's standards. If you've been here long enough, you have heard us say regularly, it's not our truth to bend. And Jesus says, not one word will pass away. It will all be accomplished. And I'm not here to lower the standard. I'm here to adjust your understanding of what the standard actually is. This, this important truth that Jesus is teaching is also a reminder for us not to ignore our daily justifications and rationalizations for our own sin. It's really easy for us to sit here, nice, comfy, cozy, and look at the world out there and say, look at those people lowering God's standards. Shame on them. And that yet find ourselves doing the very same thing in the comfort of our own living rooms while we're talking to our children. True? Or while we're interacting with our spouses. Yes? Or while we're, you know, paying our taxes. Or get the extra thing in the cart at Menards. All of a sudden, we want to start adjusting God's words to meet our own personal preferences. Yeah? And so it's really necessary for us to remember not to distract ourselves with the sin out there when we are regularly tempted to move God's word around to accommodate our own sin. And so Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes. Friends, he doesn't even say disobeys. He says relaxes. Johnny and I were out, and he was showing me around his chicken farm. And he has this electric fence that's about this high, but he had on the right boots and gloves and he took that fence and he pushed it down so I could walk over. He was relaxing the fence to allow me to get over. And Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of these truths, these least, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what we need to remember, church. 
God's kingdom is not full of those who are like the employee that does the minimal rule following just to get paid. God's kingdom is not full of begrudging children that constantly are looking for the lines drawn in the sand and then they get their toes right up as close to that baby as possible. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the teachers of the law at this time were doing. Doing the minimum. Getting in. And then and then applauding themselves on their accomplishments. And Jesus is saying, you do not understand the heart of the law of God. It's not like that. So the third point that Jesus makes is that the kingdom is filled with those who delight and do the will of God. Throughout his entire sermon, Jesus is aiming his message at the heart, not, the, not just the exterior, but the heart of his hearers. God's will, his kingdom, is not limited to external obedience, a righteousness that could be earned, and then once you've obtained it, you can congratulate and boast in your achievements. This is what the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were focusing on. But they missed it. What does it look like to love a holy, eternal God? It means you're forever becoming holier and growing towards Him without end, forever. We never stop growing and changing. From the moment He calls our name and we in faith say, I'm going to follow you, we start the process of growing and changing, of becoming like Him. If you've been around Vine and Branch for any length of time at all, you know that in this, in what we're saying here, that the kingdom is filled with those who delight and do the will of God, you know I'm not talking about earning your salvation. It's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about a faith unto obedience is the only kind of faith that truly is faith. To say I have faith and do nothing is not faith. It's agreement. And that's different. Faith is I will place my life and my will at your truth, at your reality, and I will adjust myself to you. Practically. Faith unto action. This is what Christ is talking about when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is seeking kingdom citizens who see the holiness and the righteousness of a God of grace and then respond to them with their entire heart, with their entire mind, and with their entire strength. That's what Christ is aiming at here in this passage. Are you with me? He's not just looking for children with their toes up to the line. He 
each of these three points keep getting driven further into the passage as we move on. And they're confirmed in the next section, verses 21 through 47. So after Jesus says, Blessed are you when you live out my kingdom principles. When you live out my kingdom principles, you're going to be salt, light, and a city on a hill. Let me now explain to you what I mean when I say that. Now I'm going to give you six examples to flesh out what I'm talking about. Are you following the flow? So when he gets to verses 21, six times, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You've heard that the kingdom is this way? I'm telling you it's this way. You have heard not to commit adultery. I'm telling you if you're lust in your heart. What? You've heard that it was said this external thing, but I'm telling you it's about a love and a passion and a heart and a soul and a mind. What? I can't get there. We can't do that. God wants in His kingdom... Heart, mind, and soul. All of you. And Jesus is saying, that's what my kingdom is full of. People heading in that direction. Not people wandering around with a checklist, seeing what behaviors they can tick off. With each of his upgrade lessons, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, Jesus is encouraging his kingdom followers to see farther beyond what they have been shown. I think a lot of us have heard this passage taught, the Sermon on the Mount, and most of us have heard that this section was teaching that Jesus is not loosening the standards of the law, but he's heightening them, and we see our need for righteousness. And that, that's true. That's part of what he was doing. But it's not all that he was doing. Jesus is not just cranking up the volume on, on, on morality here. Jesus is declaring that his kingdom starts with the law, and he says every word of it will be fulfilled but it goes infinitely farther than the law. Jesus is painting a picture for his followers that go far beyond what they have seen their religious leaders, far beyond their rule following, far beyond just enough to get in. Jesus is taking them further up and further in. The law is only a doorway into The kingdom of God. It shows us where we're out of line and that we need a savior. But it is not our it is not our savior. Yeah? I've told you this before. One of the great blessings is I just get to meditate on this stuff all week. And I have wanted to communicate this message to all of us so badly that I really want to do a good job. I really want us to get this reality that Jesus is helping to adjust not just his readers here in this passage, but for us, he wants us to see the kingdom for much bigger, much, much bigger than how we see it. Jesus wants us to understand not only that the law governs the kingdom, principles and parameters, and these are the fences that we stay in. This is how God works. He he not only wants us to see that that's true, 
but the grasping of God's character that joyfully takes us beyond the rules itself, fulfilling, completely fulfilling the rules as they were intended. Are you with me? Jesus is looking for us not just to be looking down for lines to cross, but looking up eternally in increasing measures, ever pursuing the never-ending righteousness and holiness of our God and Father whom we will worship forever. We will forever be learning about Him and growing in Him. We will never reach the end. Like C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, you will never explore the end of this kingdom. You'll never get to a place and you'll be like, I've seen it all. It's not going to happen. And church, that's true in our pursuit of God too. We will never get to the end of Him. Therefore, He is completely holy. We will never be like Him in this manner. We will never be completely like Him. We will always be growing and changing and morphing. Because we're not God. Jesus wants to address His listeners and us. He wants us to see, oh man, when I step on this carpet, it goes it goes forever. It's not just about obeying the laws and resting. Jesus also wants us to know that as we pursue this manner of living, the moment we are called into and placed into Christ, we start our journey of praying and striving for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my life, in my family's life in my community, as it is in heaven. And therefore, what we do as His followers today on earth matters. And it's not just obscurely connected, it's directly connected, it's directly to attach what we do tomorrow in the kingdom. You with me? What we do in obedience today trying to live out your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is directly attached to tomorrow in the kingdom. We'll be doing the same thing. In other words, His kingdom is already and not yet. We're not just waiting for His kingdom to come, twiddling our thumbs, biding our time, or biting our nails about the next thing that's around the corner. Christ wins. And because He wins ultimately, He wins today. We are joyfully and actively participating in the kingdom now, delighting and doing the will of our God in everlasting, increasing measures, always further up and further in. Here's here's what I hope this teaching accomplishes for us today at least these three things first thing my hope is that these truths would add another layer of depth to our celebration and our exaltation of christ this christmas and in our lives our king has come and our king has spoken friends we know both of those and we get to be part of what he is doing We get to know 
truth. We get to have an anchor. So how Jason opened. We get to be here. As we say at the end of our men's study, glad to be here. It's a privilege. Our king has come and our king has spoken. So whether you're a minimalist when it comes to celebrating Christmas, and you know there's some of us here that are like, yeah, none of that business, right? No, no trees for us, thank you. Or we, you know, well, we don't do those shiny ornaments, only the handmade ones or whatever. Okay, if, if you're a Christmas minimalist and you're doing so, then you, so that you can focus on Christ, then focus on Christ. And I hope that this truth helps you to celebrate even more. Or if you're a Christmas indulger for the same reason your friend is a minimalist, because we want to celebrate Christ. By the way, we got freedom here, right? We can have both of us and love each other, and we should learn from each other and be glad that the other person can rejoice. So whether you're a Christmas minimalist or a Christmas indulger, don't forget the foundation. Our king has come and our king has spoken to us, church. That's the point. Not how much or how little. And so may th- I, I, my prayer is that these truths strengthen and fortify the foundation of our joyful celebrating. That we would celebrate in word and deed with greater depth and meaning because we were together today. That God's attributes would be put on display through our gratitude and our joy and our contentment in Him. Here's the second thing I hope we accomplish today. When you face upcoming temptation and you're tempted to consider adjusting God's truth or minimizing it or justifying your disobedience or you're tempted to relax even one of the least of these commandments that you would be stirred to remember who God is that you would be stirred to remember who you are and that you would recall that your life is not about the rules you're trying to adjust but always moving closer to your Savior, this holy righteous one who has called you into his image. That's what we're called to do. Yeah? Not not play shell games with our obedience, but to be ever moving further up and further in. And remember that our high calling and our joy is in the pursuit of the never-ending righteousness and holiness of our God and Father, whom we will worship forever. Man, this is tricky for us. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because you know why we start playing shell games with the truth of God's Word? Because we think our sin is going to do something for us that it will never do. It's going to provide me joy and peace and, you know, a settledness in my spirit. No, even the youngest of you little ones know this isn't true experientially already, right? But may these truths that God has called us to this never-ending righteousness and holiness and that that is where our joy comes from. May it settle our temptations. And lastly, 
I would hope because we were together today that we would gain a fortitude and a joy and enthusiasm for the kingdom of the Lord. That as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that that has a deeper meaning for us. And that it's not just something that happens out there, but that we're building it here now and we're taking it there. That we would take joy. We are participating in building God's already not yet kingdom. We are and will be rewarded for our affections and for our efforts. And we bring God glory and we move His banner further as we put His attributes on display together. Vine and Branch team, as we do this together, pray and strive for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We become a city on a hill, salt and light.